This podcast is sponsored by Low No Drinker magazine, the number one UK magazine for the sober curious drinker, bringing you news, reviews and interviews from the people, places and brands leading the low and no alcohol revolution. As a Sober Rebel listener, use code SOBERREBEL15 to get 15% off any digital or print subscription from the Low No Drinker magazine for six whole months. Hello and welcome to my brand new Sober Rebel podcast with me, Louisa Evans, the show that demonstrates that sober is most definitely not boring. Each episode, I talk to my amazing sober guests about the ways in which their lives have improved and changed for the better in sobriety, the things they've done or seen, and maybe even the things they've tried that they never thought they'd be able to do without a drink in their hand. I'm passionate about sobriety. So whether you're sober curious, in the early stages of sobriety, or even further down the line and wanting a bit of inspiration and entertainment from some amazing people, then stick around. Today I'm talking to Pearl, also known by her Instagram handle, Rock Bottomed Girl, who certainly brings her own amazing sense of humour and phenomenal musical talent into her sobriety. Pearl, hello. Thank you so much for joining me on my very first podcast episode. Um, you're going to lose your podcast virginity to me. I am, and I feel slightly nervous. Oh, you should do. I'm going to eat you alive. So tell me a little bit more for the people listening about you and your journey with alcohol. Well, it's great that you've asked me that. This is my specialist subject. I'll give you a quick rundown about my life with alcohol, sort of in a nutshell. I identify as an alcoholic. I know a lot of others have a dislike for this word because it has a lot of stigma attached to it. And some people are quite militant about not using that word. So what I tend to do is check with people. It's like, you know, I'm woke. I check with people what their pronouns are now in the sober community. I like to ask people how they identify because I would never push that label onto anybody. But for me, using the term alcoholic really worked with the fact that my drinking had got so out of control. I just really needed to take a sledgehammer to my pride and have no wiggle room, I needed to say, right, this is the thing that's going to kill you. You are an alcoholic. Don't dance around it. You can't call yourself a binge drinker or a party girl. This is going to kill you. So I took this sledgehammer. I got rid of all of my pride. And now I am rebuilding my life based on that hardcore foundation of all these defects that alcohol gave me. And I'm using all of that to build my new life back on. By doing that as well, I'm hoping that it's really going to get rid of the stigma that's attached to it because, you know, there is a real ick in using the word alcoholic, isn't there? And uh, it can cause a lot of division within people within the sober community, which is, you know, we're all on the same fight. We all want to quit this, this drug, which essentially is what it is. And we all need to sort of get together and work together. And however, people decide to define it is up to them. And I've noticed actually through my recovery, so I've been sober for almost two and a half years, the further I get through my recovery, the more I've realized I actually don't care about labels anymore. You know, it is what it is. I haven't got this fight going on anymore. I know what I feel and I know how I want to to deal with it. And however anybody else wants to do it is up to them. How do you define yourself? 
For me, I we've had conversations about this. Um, I don't define myself as an alcoholic. I feel I walked away from alcohol before it got to that point. But I define myself as a grey area drinker. I think it was becoming a crutch in my life. And it was just becoming the thing I turned to when I was happy, when I was sad, when I was celebrating, when I was stressed, when the kids were playing up. It just was always there. And I think for me, it's whatever works for anybody. I think if it works for you, as you say, the enemy is the same, which is the alcohol industry. And so it's whatever works for you to be able to walk away from that. Yeah. Like you say, you kind of, you had the choice. You don't have to define yourself as an alcoholic before you you decide to quit drinking. And, you know, with my 2020 vision hindsight, obviously I wish I'd done it sooner, which yeah. is what we're going to talk about today because life is blooming sweet now. And uh, what I really love is that when I talk with other people who are in recovery, who've decided to get sober, it's kind of like speed dating, isn't it? You want to get straight to it within like a minute. You're saying, oh yeah, I once woke up in a warehouse with a pit bull licking my feet. And uh, oh yeah. What get... you were going to say then. <laughs> we kind of get down to it. We talk about all these like depraved acts of insanity that we've got to because of our drinking and it's no holds barred because we understand each other instead of plenty of fish.com it's plenty of booze.com we just want to know what's going on with each other straight away so I I started drinking when I was 14 which I know is a big reason why a lot of people end up having alcohol use disorders later on in life the earlier you start drinking you kind of don't give your brain much of a chance to function properly um, I was in a band. I still am. So I sort of hit the ground running and hanging out with older people. And it sort of turned into a fine art, my drinking. It went through lots of different stages. You know, I was a party girl, but then over the years, it progressed. I had three spells of enforced sobriety because I got pregnant. I didn't drink at all when I was pregnant. But each time I went back to drinking, and it then escalated and progressed. I became a mummy wine drinker and surrounded myself with other mums that were doing the same. And that reinforces the thoughts of, oh, I'm not that bad. You compare yourself to other people. And now I have the realization, like, I don't care what other people are doing. I know the effect that this is having on my life. And it needed to stop because in the end, I was just, you know, in total, total despair. I just didn't know how I could live. I couldn't even go to the post office. Just the thought of doing daily tasks was um, a nightmare for me. And that's no way to live, is it? That's boring. That's boring. Getting drunk isn't exciting for me anymore. It's not fun. Actually having a life and being able to function and being present is the least boring thing I can think of. And I just don't ever have the words to explain that. That's why I'm so happy you're doing this podcast, because it's going to be so positive talking about all, all these amazing things that I now have now that I'm sober. That's amazing. And that's exactly why I wanted to do it. I'm one of those glass half full people. There was a, an amazing quote on Instagram once. My glass was was never half full or half empty because I was always bloody drinking from it. Um, but for me, I've always been a glass half full, positive, optimistic kind of person. And it's once I started really noticing the benefits of sobriety and how great life is when you're not drip feeding alcohol into your life, because I can't say I was at any sort of rock bottom, but it was consistent. 
every meal out, every weekend, weeknights, or if you'd been to the gym and you'd worked hard, then a couple of glasses of wine to celebrate. It was just constant. And that was eroding so much that I never even realized. And I think there's a lot of people out there that don't realize how much it's having an effect on them, even in moderate quantities. Yeah, we. I mean, we use it to medicate, don't we? We do. It's- yeah, it's a medication, but then we also, like you said, use the word a treat after going to the gym or having a hard day. Which is nuts. Isn't that we, just bonkers? It's crazy because the huge change with me has happened with the change of my mindset. And I absolutely no longer view alcohol as a treat. I don't feel like I'm missing out. I think people that depend on it are the ones that are missing out. And the fact that I don't use it as a medication to deal with daily stresses, which is what we're told, especially as mothers, is that you have kids, you've had a hard day, that's why you need to drink. No, what I need to do is have amazing support available to me and to be able to function and uh, have strategies in which to live my life and deal with stress in an effective way, which doesn't involve zoning out, being a zombie or burying my head in the sand with alcohol. So the freedom and the huge amount of self-confidence that gives you, it's just great. Which brings us so neatly onto what I've asked you to, to come on here to talk about, which is three things that you feel have shifted for you in sobriety. It could be internal, external, it could be about your life, things you're doing, but things that have been a positive change because we can often over-focus on this idea of missing out when we're not missing out on anything. You've put it brilliantly. As as I've sort of described to you, because alcohol, it just punctuated every single aspect of my daily living. So there are many, many things that I could have thought of for this list, but I've gone right back down to the basic needs that we have as a human and how alcohol affected those things for me. The first one I'd like to talk about is food. So (laughs) love a bit of food now. This, you know, we could probably talk for hours and hours about this, but I've got a few things that I've noticed to do with food. So when I was drinking, I was known as the hostess with the mostest and entertaining and having parties enabled my drinking. So I would, but oh, it's Wednesday, let's celebrate Wednesday, come over and have a party. You know, it got kind of stupid like that. That facilitated my drinking. So I would also make really bad food decisions. If I wasn't entertaining, if it was a normal day, let's say, I would start drinking. I would miss out on family meal times. I would think that it was a waste of time to stop drinking and join in the rest of the family and have food. I would eat later. You know, I wasn't rolling around drunk. I was kind of topping myself up, but I just lost my appetite and didn't really see the point of eating. Then I would end up eating very late at night or not at all. Then I would make really poor choices to do with food the next day. I remember one weekend, you know, I went on a bit of a bender. This was when children weren't involved, but I ate two pickled onions in three days because I was drinking so much and I almost killed myself and I can't oh. eat pickled onions anymore. So one thing I can do now is like eat, eat at regular intervals. <laughs> That's a bonus. It's I mean, really I think- yeah, it's it's yeah, it's terrible, isn't it? But I don't know about you. I've always found everything in my life difficult to moderate. So what I would do is go on a crazy diet as well. I would 
diet for two weeks at a time, cut out carbs, do all that. But I would never cut out alcohol. No, like, that never could alcohol. Be the problem. Do you remember the Atkins diet? I remember in my 20s. Yes. It was yeah. a massive thing, wasn't it? Um, I think Jennifer Aniston or somebody, I was I was a big Friends fan and everybody lost weight and looked amazing on Atkins. I look back now, I looked amazing. I didn't yeah. need to do that, but I had an eating disorder. And so it was anything I could use to label it. And they talked about vodka being, is, that, is it carb free? Well, I can't stand vodka. I never have been able to drink vodka, but I actually tried to just to get the drug. <laughs> now I look yeah. back on it. My nightly top up or my uh, every other night top up at that point. And I just couldn't do it. I just did not like vodka. I know. And isn't it funny that they know that people literally can't function on a diet or in daily living without being able to have some sort of choice of alcohol. So they say, yeah. (laughs) And I think that's the thing. I always looked after my basic needs, I would say. I did eat and I did do that. But I had very disordered eating. And that came from... I think the 80s and 90s diet culture when I was a child and just these emaciated. Yeah, Yeah, I grew up in the same same era. Yeah. I was offsetting my alcohol calories by exercising and then not eating proper portions or, as I say, very disordered eating. It was it was incredibly unhealthy. Um, But I remember being in the gym working out and working out how many calories I needed to burn off to have a couple of cans of lager. You're in negative equity with your your health. You're trying to go to the gym and actually you might get to a, a zero. Whereas now that we don't drink and we're making better food choices, you start on the zero and then you can level up and build. Whereas before, yeah, you're just on the back foot all the time. Yeah. I always thought that I really liked cooking as well. And by getting sober, I've realized that I don't. I'm very good at cooking because I've spent a lot of time practicing it, which is the same with any skill, isn't it? You know, with sobriety, you get better at it because you're practicing it. With cooking, it was the same. And so I had this belief that I loved cooking, but what I really loved was drinking while I was cooking or using dinner parties or whatever as a reason to drink. When I got sober, I thought, oh my God, I don't want to cook. That's a major trigger for me. A lot of my drinking happened at home. There are a lot of people that say, I'm not going to go to the pub or go to the bar because that's a trigger for me. My entire house was a trigger for me because that's where a lot of my drinking took place. So what I had to change in sobriety was, well, first of all, I couldn't go to the supermarket for six months because I didn't want to walk down the the aisle of death, I call it. I said, I'm really sorry, I can't go to the supermarket. I can now. I've done a little bit of dipping my toes in the water and like, what is it? Exposure therapy, something? Yes, it is exposure (laughs) therapy. (laughs) I need to ask you, you're the therapist. Yeah. So I thought, this is stupid. I have to go to the supermarket at some point. But to start with, because my sobriety was so fragile, I had to protect it like a bird on its eggs. I had to look after my sobriety. So I didn't go to the supermarket and I pretty much stopped cooking because for me, that was like cook and drink in the hand. So, so did you change your association with that? Did you have a different drink or did you just not cook? I'd say I'm not cooking. Somebody else can do the cooking. For the first six months, supermarket and cooking was pretty much off the table. If I did cook, I would do it at a different time of the day. So I might prepare things in the morning and bulk cook for the week, knowing that when it got to the evening, I absolutely would not be able to do it. So I really had to change my routine. That is a really good tip, because even though 
I didn't have as strong an association. I still had a really strong association with a glass of wine cooking a a meal in the evening. I did have that association. So for anybody that's maybe struggling at that time of day, doing something differently, batch cooking or slow cooking is a good way just in those early days because it doesn't last. It really doesn't last like that. I was so very fortunate to have a wonderful support system that could help me, but there are people out there that don't. And, you know, it's all about employing strategies that are going to help you because these little, little big triggers come up without any warning. And I'm thinking, why am I feeling so harassed having to cook? Oh, it's because I associate it with alcohol. So then you have to work your way around it and, and find ways to do it. Yeah. I absolutely love food. I especially love it when other people cook for me. When I travel, I'm always up for trying new things. It was a real sticking point for me. And I I really had to acknowledge that and unpick it all because we need food to survive, don't we? And how are you now with that? So you who who cooks now? Well, I have a husband who um who cooks a lot, which is great. You lucky thing. I am, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I still, I I love cooking and I always have loved cooking, but I will confess that I used to spend most of my evening in the kitchen taking ages to cook because it meant I was just out of sight, out of mind, glass of wine, little sippy sippy, little dancey dancey. You know, it was every every night was a party. So I can completely associate with that. And so what have you found that you you do enjoy instead of cooking? Because if that was your major passion, then what have you replaced it with? I, I can cook now. And there are certain things that I enjoy doing. So what I try and do now is make it more of a family activity and get other people involved. I'm very lucky. I mean, my husband, he was a professional chef. He's gone back to being an electrician now after COVID. But I'm really lucky that he loves cooking. So I will sit there and I'll, you know, I'll put music on and we make it a different event is what we've done. It's yeah. a completely different show, the whole cooking thing. Or we'll we'll go, you know, I, I live in Brussels. We can we ride our bikes to the boulangerie in the morning at the weekend and we'll eat our breakfast there. And we just have completely changed the whole setting. But then it soon becomes quite normal to you, doesn't it? You create these new routines and you think, actually, cycling to the boulangerie, look at me, you're French. Um, ooh la la. Uh, ooh la la. It's the only <laughs> word I know because you said it. Doing things like that and going, God, aren't mornings brilliant? Or isn't going out for a coffee in the morning absolutely fantastic? And it doesn't always have to revolve around those same reward systems that we used for years. And it opens up more rewards, loads more rewards. Major senses of achievements and all the way through the day. And I'll I'll do something and not, you know, if if we're talking about cooking, I'll I'll perform a task in the kitchen. I go, oh, that was great. I didn't even think about having alcohol or I can just do all this stuff without alcohol. You know, I couldn't wash up without alcohol next to me. That's how bad it was. So now just to be able to do any menial task, I'm like, yeah, you go, girl. It just permeates gradually over time, doesn't it? It permeates different activities. And you think, how on earth did alcohol sneak into this activity? How on earth now just chopping vegetables remind me of having a glass of wine in my hand or turning up to a holiday and pitching up a motorhome like we do. Why yeah. is that suddenly now associated with cracking open a beer? It's you silly. Yeah. You, you don't even have to be drinking it. 
just the thought and the action of thinking about it permeates the activity. So you might be thinking, oh, I'm quickly going to get this done so I can drink afterwards. Or, oh, I feel shit trying to do this because I'm hungover or I need a drink. So it's not just the act of drinking, it's the act of thinking about drinking, which, which took up all my time. So what is life like now without that constant niggle in your mind about drinking? It's just absolute liberation. That word doesn't even describe it. Just absolute liberation. I went kayaking recently and the the alcohol menu was bigger than the food menu in the cafe at the place that I was at by this big lake. And because I'm an alcoholic, I have this radar and I can see what everybody's drinking, how fast they're drinking it, who's leaving stuff in their glass. And I was thinking, I'm kind of enjoying this in a perverse way because this has nothing to do in my life anymore. And I'm not here wishing that I can go and have a drink or feeling hungover. It just enforces what I want to do when I see others doing that. They might be happy enough. That's up to them. And I just want to say, I don't judge anybody by the choices they make because you're my people. I know what it's like. You know, there are a lot of people that seemingly don't have problems with alcohol and they can go and have a beer, but that's not me. So when no, I it's not me either. That, no, I see people doing that and I think, yeah, whatever. But I'm so chuffed that I don't even have those thoughts anymore. And if someone had told me that years ago, I wouldn't have believed them. I thought it was so ingrained in me. I would have thought, no, that that could never happen to me. I can't imagine my life without it. And you are, you are free now. And that's the thing, isn't it? That freedom that you feel, you never, ever expect to feel it. When you're in the start, the early days of sobriety, you're hoping to feel it. You're hoping that someday not every thought is going to turn to whether you are or aren't drinking, even if you don't pick up a drink. But it's it's about then that time that you go, do you know what? I haven't thought about it or I don't envy that person sat next to me with their half a beer. You know, what what is a half pint anyway? I never, ever had a half measure, but you don't envy it. And and that's the thing I've noticed is the reaching that point where you're not even there's no fear of missing out. There's no I, I am absolutely happy. Obviously, that phrase joy of missing out. Very happy if that is joining in to miss out. I'm I'm good with that. Yeah, me too. I'll be in that gang. I'm I'm well up for being a fully fledged member of that that group. I'm up for that. <laughs> <laughs> so if you were to summarize then how the attitude to food, obviously you've discussed the fact that you've decided that you're not the person who wants to spend all their time in the kitchen. There's nothing wrong with that. Absolutely not. But you still enjoy food and you enjoy being in the kitchen while your husband's cooking. How would you summarize the difference then with your attitude to food as a drinker versus now as a sober person? Well, it's like night and day. So yeah, all of this dysfunctional behavior and thoughts I had around food have gone and I can make more healthy choices. I can moderate my intake of different foods. I never deny myself anything. And it's not used as a kind of fuel. It's used as a pleasure center rather than, oh, I need this to make myself feel better or I don't want that because I'm drinking instead. So the whole shift in my attitude towards food is just, yeah, opposite end of the spectrum, I would say. And food is a big one for me as well, because obviously as somebody with an eating disorder, food is such a big focus for me. And 
I would say in sobriety, my body dysmorphia has gone. Yes, I've lost weight. And I know that doesn't happen for everybody, but I lost weight because I needed to. I just had a baby and I'm now resting at lighter than I ever have done throughout my adult life. And I work out and I eat well, but I treat myself and I enjoy it for the first time. I'm not beating myself up about what I eat or don't eat, all of that disordered thinking, because I might have sorted out the disordered behavior over the years, but I hadn't sorted out my disordered thinking around food and the way I was treating it. And that has gone in sobriety. And it's only probably last month I realized, God, that's gone. And the body dysmorphia has gone. I can now, I think, see what other people see when they tell you what they're seeing, if that makes sense. Oh, Louisa, I'm so happy to hear that because I know that you have a history of yeah eating disorders and it's the sort of thing that, you know, every time you look at your reflection or a photograph, or it's even worse now because we're always looking at ourselves on social media and things like that. And for, for you to have conquered that because of your sobriety, would you put that down to the fact that you're sober, that it's helped you so much with your, your body dysmorphia? 100 percent i've got goose pimples seriously it's it's just like the best success story ever isn't it and i never realized because if i look back at my eating disorder and when it started it was in my late teens early 20s but it really took off it took off in my early 20s i became professional um and i think that was due to a lot of circumstantial things but i started drinking just having this belief that if i ate normally i'd gain weight that belief crippled me for years and I got rid of lots of things. I've dealt with lots of things over the years. And obviously as a therapist now, I help other people with it. And I always come from a standpoint of really truly understanding what it feels like. Uh, But that disordered eating was still niggling at the back of my mind and it's gone. And sobriety is is completely 100% to thank for that. Wonderful sobriety. So moving on then, so that's food. So what's your next basic need, your plus point of sobriety? Over to you. Let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about sex and sobriety. (laughs) God, that was bad, wasn't it? (laughs) I love it. I've never openly, really, apart from with my sponsor or maybe my best friend, never really spoken about this, but we're women the the headlines around sex and alcohol and sexual function normally go to men don't they with brewers droop erectile dysfunction yeah things like that but it really 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 affects women and through preparing for this podcast i've sort of gone down a rabbit hole because there are a lot of things that happen to me both um mentally and physically that affected my sexual function because of alcohol. It's a huge subject, but when I got sober, I kind of realized that I didn't know how to have sex without alcohol involved. All of my sexual encounters happened as a result of consuming alcohol. And I'm not talking about being blackout drunk, although there were sexual assaults that happened to me, um, which I won't go into. But as a general thing, you know, a lot of people are promiscuous, which I was. I was a party girl. I was in a band. I was living what I thought was my best life. And it was all fueled by alcohol, a lot of the decisions and situations that I got into. So then when my alcoholism progressed, I 
realized that I was going to bed at a different time to my partner. I would either go to bed before him, before he came back from work. So I'd be asleep when he got back, having drunk already. Or if I was up drinking or with friends or whatever, he would go to bed before me and I would roll into bed later. And we only ever really ended up having sex in the morning. And I think that was attached to the fact that I was feeling hungover and I just wanted someone to love me. So I had all of these associations with sex, which were, I am feeling pure self-loathing. I want someone to love me. So that's what I associated with having sex. So when I got sober, I realized I don't know how to have sex without alcohol being involved. And yes, maybe having one or two drinks gives you a bit of confidence and things like that. But having researched it and going down this rabbit hole, I just want to tell you some of the findings that I've come up with because a lot of it resonated with me. Oh, go on. Also, obviously, I'm not I'm not a scientist. I'm the lay person, right? I'm You're the, the Googler. You're the Googler. I'm the person who gets laid, but I'm the lay person who um, resonated with this. So maybe you will as well. But hopefully some people are listening to this because there's a lot of taboo around talking about sex, isn't there? Yeah, almost as much as talking about alcohol and drinking. So let's put the two together because yeah. we're, we're sober rebels. Let's talk about sex and alcohol. Absolutely. Uh, Come on, bring it on. That's, that's how we roll. So um, there was a study I found and it was called The Risk of Sexual Dysfunction Associated with Alcohol Consumption in Women, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. And this was published in May of this year. So it's like a very recent study that's happened. There's uh, several researchers involved in this and it's talking about alcohol abuse among women and its significant health problems associated with decreased sexual stimulation, vaginal lubrication, dyspareunia, which apparently is pain that you have either during sexual intercourse or afterwards, and a difficulty in reaching orgasm. For me, I certainly had that problem. Alcohol numbed my whole system. So you don't have to go into your private life, Louisa, but hopefully people might hear this and um, agree with me that it was very hard to reach orgasm after drinking because yeah. my my body was numb. My, my nervous system, my connection. For me, sex is a very mental and physical connection. If I didn't have that, then I was literally just like a, a blob. You know, it really affected me, mind, body and soul. I completely agree with you on that one. I think, obviously, rolling drunk, nobody wants to even go there. I mean, you just don't. But I I would say a couple of glasses of wine. You think mentally that it's helping you relax, but actually it's zoning you out and you're not in the room. Man or woman, you are not in the room. And when you think about that, who wants to have sex with somebody? Who wants to do that without being in the room? Or who wants to be with you when you're not in the room? Yeah, it's terrifying, I would say. And again, through sobriety, I was thinking, you know, I really want to have sex with my husband. I love this man. He's like helped me immeasurably. He stood by me. This is the person I want to be with. Why can't I do it? And the realization that a lot of it revolved around the fact that I only knew how to do this act was after I'd been drinking or because I hated myself and wanted someone to love me. So we've we've talked a lot about that. I have talked about it a lot with my husband. And so 
for this podcast. I'm not going to tell you what we get up to, but it has changed our lives immeasurably in the sense that we have this connection, physical, mental, the communication that we have. It's just amazing. And apparently, well, according to this research, it says that the likelihood of sexual dysfunction in women is 74% if you have consumed alcohol. And that's just moderate alcohol consumption. So if you have a couple of glasses of wine, you're 74% more likely to have some of these symptoms of sexual dysfunction affecting you. That is basically like potentially having to fake 75% more orgasms, isn't it? Like- or just like me, I'm too honest. <laughs> I'm just very honest. Did you enjoy that love? Well, you know, could have been better. <laughs> I know. But this is happening to women. And, you know, we don't have a physical barometer, let's say, like a man does when they can't get it up. It doesn't show. It's all internalized. And-, and people don't talk about it, do they? They do not talk about the fact that maybe, oh, our sex life could be better. You know, yeah. and I would I would completely agree with you there. There is a barrier initially where you're thinking, how am I going to do this? Because I, like you, I would have a couple of glasses of wine, a meal out, something like that. And then you're feeling all romantic, get jiggy with it. But it's actually so different having sex sober. We've had really good conversations about it. Yeah, because it's you're present, you're totally in the room, good, bad and the ugly, you know, you are totally in the room and you are connecting with that person, which is actually what sex should be. And if you feel you need to have a couple of glasses of wine to do that thing with that person, maybe you shouldn't be doing the thing or doing it with that person. And I always say that sober sex is a bit like a sober holiday. It's just different. And it's ultimately (laughs) better. It's so much better than drunk sex. So much better. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, you know, and having drunk sex and all that, for God's sake, you don't wake up feeling great, do you? No. I mean, some of the stories are quite funny. Some of them aren't. But one thing that I don't have to do now in my sobriety is um, scuttle off down to the sexual health clinic and get emergency contraception or anything like that. So I'm not hot tailing it down there with a with a hoodie on in disguise. I'm walking around like, yay, I'm having the best sex of my life and I'm responsible. Rock and roll, baby. <laughs> And I think as well, I certainly used a couple of glasses of wine every now and again. I would use that as a bit of um, a masking the body dysmorphia, you know, just I don't want to think about the wobbly bits. But I will say sober sex, right, the wobbly bits are the best bits. Are they not? (laughs) The wobbly bits are the bits that men always like, all women always like. So don't worry about them. I know. know, Don't worry about it. You get this confidence in sobriety and you can laugh. I don't feel self-conscious. It's just great. I think we are firm, firm champions then for the sober sex. So that's a big thumbs up on the sober sex. We've done food. We've done sex. And what's the third thing? This just comes under daily function because as I've already said, every single aspect of my life was taken over by alcohol. So I now have what I call an obsession with the mundane. Let's just start with breathing. (laughs) I'm obsessed with the fact that I can breathe properly now. Well, I was having terrible anxiety and panic attacks, which have 100% disappeared now that I no longer drink. I don't feel depressed. I don't have anxiety attacks and panic and I don't hyperventilate. I 
I was told I had subconscious hyperventilation. I was feeling lightheaded all the time. There was a few times when I passed out. They couldn't find anything physically wrong with me other than the fact that I wasn't breathing correctly. And I put that down to the fact that I was either hungover or drinking, which, you know, plays absolute havoc with with all of that. Your blood pressure, your heart rate, just feeling panicky all the time. You would be the specialist to to talk about this because I know we've done a breathing technique with each other before, which I think is really helpful. Yeah. So basically breath is it's really important, you know, funny that. So how you breathe is incredibly important and taking those deep, relaxing breaths are just, they are connecting back into the rest and digest side of the autonomic nervous system to give it its sort of technical background. But that's really interesting that that alcohol was affecting you like that. Now, I, I know there's a link with anxiety. Obviously, as a therapist, I do talk to people about anxiety in clinic. One of the first things we talk about is alcohol consumption. And a lot of people who have anxiety actually have already put that link together. Not everybody, but a lot of people have already said, no, I don't drink because when I drink, my anxiety is worse. But there are a lot of people wandering around that don't realize how linked alcohol and anxiety are. The same with IBS. There's an autonomic nervous system in your body that functions and looks after everything that you need to look after. So it controls how fast your heart beats, how you're digesting your food, how you're breathing. And alcohol messes with that system. It's a toxin. Even in moderate amounts, it's going to mess with that system. So obviously, you weren't doing it in moderate amounts, and it was really messing with your system. And I've had times in my life through grief where I've drunk more, and I ended up with panic attacks. So they are so linked, aren't they? Yeah. I cannot believe how my panic and anxiety problems have literally vanished since cutting out alcohol. And if for no other reason, alcohol is not affecting you, you know, if you're not feeling really hungover, if your relationships are okay, but if you have anxiety or panic or depression, quit alcohol. It it can do nothing but positive things to your life. You might not think alcohol is causing any other problem, but if you suffer from anxiety or panic disorders, then try cutting it out and see the difference that happens because it's miraculous. It's a cycle as well, because if we're depressed or if we're anxious, we then medicate that with alcohol, which is actually the thing that is causing those things. Just get rid of it. That's my advice. It is the hamster wheel of doom, isn't it? Oh, It is just never ending. I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling low. Oh, I'll have a drink. And the amount of times I would come home from a stressful day um, or the kids would be playing up, you know, they always do that at five o'clock, don't they? And the funny memes on social media would get into my head and all of a sudden it's five o'clock somewhere, you know, and I'd want a drink Mm -hmm. because I was self-medicating and I was just wanting to switch off my mind and I was just wanting to zone out ever so slightly. And that's just the way I learned how to do it. Yeah, that's the way we tell ourselves is the only way to deal with it. So for me, learning how to breathe is a basic human need, isn't it? So I've kind of managed to do that. I I don't really practice yoga or breath work properly, but I am very aware and mindful of my whole system, how it works, my heart, 
impact my blood pressure, my breathing, other things that might sound mundane. So when I first quit drinking, I spent a lot of time. One of my new hobbies was staring out of the window, wishing I could moderate. And I would spend hours doing that. Does that classify as a hobby? Because it really (laughs) felt like it was at the time. (laughs) I I always say to people, whatever works in early sobriety works. Is that I kind of thought, uh, you know, I'm staring out of the window wistfully. I can almost hear the the music if it was, you know, a, a, an art house short film of me with a tear rolling down my cheek. Like, why can't I moderate like everyone else? I thought, oh, my God, I've got all this spare time. Like, this is crazy. I have hours and hours and hours like every day now. It's what am I going to do with my time? I really then started exploring other things so I got back into playing music learning how to play the bass guitar saved my life my neighbor was having an open window concert about six weeks after I quit drinking and I essentially threw myself through his front window and said I want to be in a band so I had a conversation with him the next day he said we need a bass player do you play the bass I said no but I can learn. So he gave me a bass, gave me some lessons, and now we're in a band together. And he has been sober for 22 years as well. So he has been amazing support for me. And I put that down to, you know, my sobriety, being able to get back into music again, which is the love of my life. So that keeps my hands busy. I play my bass guitar when I'm sat watching TV. I'm practicing my scales. I don't know if you felt like this, Louisa, especially in early sobriety, I needed stuff to do with my hands. I started knitting. I would I would need something in my hands, um, especially if I was invited to a party. Did you feel like that? I think I needed something to occupy my mind. So even watching television wasn't enough for me. You know, my, my husband always sits there and goes, God, you never switch off, do you? I've always got the phone in one hand, which I know is a terrible habit. Please don't judge me. No judgment here. But I've taken to playing games on my phone because I've realized my brain seems to need constant stimulation. And so even a TV show where I'm listening, I am watching it. I'm listening. I can tell you what's going on. But there's a part of my brain that just needs that kind of mundane activity. And that used to be drinking for me. So what I did was I turned that to a more helpful habit of playing uh, Tetris or blocks or something that doesn't require active brain function, but can just just take up that little bit of cognitive functioning. I, I need something physical and active to do with my hands, but yours is the brain. And it's yeah. this stimulation that alcohol or we think alcohol gives us. So yeah, we're constantly trying. I mean, I find it much easier now. I can um I can deal with myself better, but certainly in early sobriety. And I know that maybe people would be listening to this that are just embarking or on their sobriety journey or they're sober curious. It's one of these things that's really useful in your toolkit. You might hear this term quite often is to just be prepared. So if you're in a situation where you think, I call it getting the fidgets. So if I was invited to a family party, the activity generally was drinking and I would either keep myself busy or preferably hang out with the kids because they're more fun or take the dog for a walk because that's more fun than drinking for me. So yeah, another thing I do with my hands now is ironing. (laughs) Oh, I'm not starting to do that. I don't care. My mum will roll her eyes. Do you know my mother irons knickers? I have never understood this. She's going to kill me for saying that, but she does. 
but she irons everything and and as a child I used to watch her ironing iron it's all she seemed to do I just have memories of my mother ironing constantly and she still does it and now she's taken to listening to podcasts while ironing so she can listen to this one and then kill me afterwards ironing I've I've never done it in my life I thought I've got a straight mind I'm feeling straight I want my clothes to look straight I want them to reflect how I'm feeling internally and I like a nice crisply ironed shirt and I want my children to look like they've been brought up properly by a sober mother who can be bothered to iron yeah I get the ironing board out I put my music on I have fun with it and this sounds absolutely bonkers cannot believe I'm saying it myself but I iron my clothes and I feel pride pride is a a kind of strange one isn't it I just feel like I'm worthy before I never felt worthy to have nice things. And now I I really do feel worthy of wearing nicely washed and ironed clothes because that's a reflection of how I feel mentally. So yeah, ironing, but I listen to whole really loud. Courtney loves bands though. That's, that's how I do it. I think for me, ironing is never going to be something I'm going to do. Sorry, mum. I am never going to do it. I just see it as a waste of time just to put the clothes back in the wardrobe to crease or my daughter to try them on and throw them on the floor to crease like I used to as a teenager. Uh, But I'm getting more pleasure out of, you know, housework, cleaning out a cupboard. I've just sorted out all of my clothes, got rid of clothes that no longer fit anymore, that no longer reflect me. I don't know if you found your wardrobe started to change when you got sober. I have started to wear more colour. I was just going to say that. I used to shroud myself in black. I mean, I do love black still, but I wear much more crazy outfits and brighter colours because I don't feel like I need to hide. Yeah, exactly the same. I, I, I don't know what it is because I wouldn't have told you I wanted to hide. But if we ever went into a restaurant, I would always want to sit by the wall in the corner. I'd never want my back to the room. Mm-hmm. So now I go and I sit wherever I want. I'm wearing bright colours and I love it. That task in itself, talking about mundane tasks, sorting out your knicker drawer. Yeah. I loved doing that the other day. Sorting it's out a- and throwing away the big granny knickers. I'm going to start calling you Bridget. You can use it as a meditation and you get a lot of satisfaction out of doing these things because if you have a an ordered environment, it makes me feel better internally. And when I was drinking, my brain was so cluttered and so full of mess and rubbish. And with my sobriety, I had to make baby steps. I had to start small. I've never lived in a tip, but there's always lots of jobs that needed doing Now I think, okay, I'm going to start small. I'm going to clean out one drawer and then tomorrow I'll do another one. And I do that with my physical world and my environment. And I've done it mentally as well. That Yeah. And I deserve it. I deserve this. That I deserve to have a nice place to live and I deserve not to have messy, disordered thoughts or a messy, disordered house. I always say that alcohol robs you of your pride. And again, I keep going back to even if you're a moderate drinker and telling yourself you're not going to drink that night and then you drink and that's robbing you of your pride in yourself. It just robbed me constantly because I would always be looking to moderate. I would constantly be looking to moderate and I just wasn't achieving it. And that sort of subliminal constant failing was having an effect on me. Mm. And now every morning I wake up sober, it's it's bringing me back a sense of pride. It's bringing me back that self-respect that if I say I'm going to do something, 
I do it. And I never let anybody down. I never didn't turn up to anything. I was always incredibly reliable. But it was that feeling I was letting myself down. Yeah, it gives you the right sort of pride. Because alcohol also can give you a sense of inflated ego and self-righteousness, which feeds into a more negative type of pride, whereas sobriety gives you self-worth. I was a bad case. I'm never going to be fully recovered. I just know that I'm on this path of recovery. And by being sober and working on these things every single day, I just carry on this trajectory. So are there any other things you've done in sobriety that you never thought you would do? I play in a band. I love going to gigs. I love going to festivals. Imagining doing that without alcohol was an absolutely terrifying prospect for me because actually all of my activities were alcohol and then the music or the festival would be the backdrop to the alcohol, not the other way around. And when I think about the amount of time I've wasted and gigs that I haven't appreciated, I went to Glastonbury and in 97, the show that Radiohead did was just voted the best ever live show at Glastonbury. I was there and I was ugly crying. I got lost from all of my friends. I passed out in the mud and I woke up miles away from where I was supposed to be the next morning. That is hideous. Wouldn't you agree? I would <laughs> say, yeah, that sounds awful to be looking back on. So in sobriety, then, when you go to a gig now, you are fully present, correct, enjoying the music, no ugly crying? No ugly crying, maybe euphoric crying, but no ugly crying. And I went to watch Jack White play. It was the first gig that I went to when I got sober. And I was thinking, how am I going to do this? It was the best gig ever. I don't know if it was because I bloody love him or because of the fact I was sober. I wasn't thinking about queuing up for a drink or sneaking booze in. I wasn't wasted and not paying attention to what was going on. I was there. I remember every moment of it. And the fact that I managed to do it sober, the sense of achievement and how great it was afterwards, knowing I was going to feel great in the morning, I cannot recommend it enough. And the fact that I play in a band now thinking that I could never play live music myself without drinking. I do it all the time and I'm playing well. I'm playing to the best of my ability. I know I am. I might not be perfect, but I am playing with other musicians who I learn from the whole music thing is really big for me. And you're present for it. So you're actually in the room listening. Do you know, that makes me think, I saw on social media the other day, there was this picture of this guy who had clearly drunk too much. So he was at a Foo Fighters gig and he was passed out. So Dave Grohl was pictured with him. He was passed out and they showed the pictures to him afterwards. So he completely missed the gig. He missed meeting the, the band and everything. And it was all... I suppose it was put down as a, a funny scenario, but I couldn't help feeling really sorry for that guy. Well, wasted opportunity. <laughs> I know. I mean, I'm sure we've all had wasted opportunities through being wasted. You know, I went to see, I, I'm a big comedy fan and I went to see Dylan Moran yeah. in Buxton years and years and years ago when he was doing Black Books. And I just love Dylan Moran and um, me and my then partner were in the pub drinking in the afternoon steadily not silly and then we went to the gig and then in the interval we had a couple more pints or I can't remember a glass of wine or something and I remember struggling to concentrate 
struggling mm-hmm. and not being in the room. Although I was there, I was really, you know, when you're in that moment where you're trying to take in the jokes and trying to remember what's happened. Yeah. And I even met him afterwards. And although I remember it all, I wasn't present for it. I wasn't in the room. I wasn't in any way appreciative of the fact that we traveled all the way up to Buxton. We'd, you know, spent the weekend up there for this event. Mm -hmm. And yet alcohol robbed a part of that for me. Yeah, it's marred it, hasn't it? Your your memory of that now is overshadowed by the effect that alcohol had on you. It's quite funny calling it a wasted opportunity. If you think about being yeah. wasted, it's a wasted inopportunity. <laughs> I don't know how you would... it, it is. It is such a waste. Of... You don't have to be actually wasted. Just having a few drinks affects the way that you absorb things and remember things, doesn't it? It does. And oh, can we touch on arguments? I mean, if you're going to go and do things and go to places and I can think of so many times over the years where there's been squabbling or bickering between friends or partners Mm -hmm. or just because one of you or both of you has had a little tiny bit too much to drink and there's been a misunderstanding or a miscommunication and then that event is wasted. Oh, God. Yeah. I could start an argument with myself when I was drinking. So yeah, I could start an argument in an empty room. So could my husband. So we could both be in different rooms and still arguing, you know, but we don't argue now. This is, I mean, anybody would think we have this picture perfect marriage these days, (laughs) but we do not argue. That was one of my drivers, one of the many, why I wanted to remove alcohol from my life. And it was the effect it was having on communication between the two of us. And there is a point where I just think it just gets silly. It really does get silly. So for me now, we have good communication. And going back to sex, that then is more likely to lead to sex. Because I tell Mm -hmm. you what, when you've got a cob on with somebody, you do not want sex. Your daily life with your partner is the foreplay, isn't it? It is, yeah. You can get to the bedroom. So if you're communicating and you're not arguing and you have a sweet relationship, then obviously that is all foreplay for the finale. But yeah. (laughs) Very good point. The other thing that I used to do when I was drinking was uh, listen to podcasts pretty much from uh, morning till night. And I realised this because I wanted to drown out this like awful internal monologue that I was having I wanted to drown out my thoughts and isn't that sad the idea that you're so scared of that internal monologue that you're distracting yourself constantly you know things like podcasts and films and doing things in life should be an addition to -hmm. your life it shouldn't be a distraction I know it is really sad isn't it like truly sad I could have been doing that for many more years but I'm not anymore And that's the point of this podcast, isn't it? You know, it's to say that, yeah, alcohol's a bit shit, right? We all know it's a bit shit and it's awful to be in, but there is light at the end of the tunnel. And all of these things, all of these seemingly, as you've said, basic needs have been enhanced. And I can agree with you on so many of them with food, with attitude to yourself, with being happy to listen to your own internal monologue sex, everything improves in sobriety. And I've I've yet to think of anything that's got worse. Can you think of anything that's got worse? I can't. No. There you go. I want to ask you, what is the most shocking thing that you've done sober, oh. right? 
that you thought you'd have to have had a drink to do? I can see you laughing. I think I do much more shocking things now than I ever did when I was drinking. This this might sound like the worst evening out for some people listening to this, but I go to AA and we had a midsummer's party and yeah, it must sound awful, an AA party. And we had our usual meeting and then everyone brought food and there was loads of people there. I go to a great group in Brussels. It's a huge cross-section of people. There's a young guy who puts the music on and I don't know what it was, Biggie or Tupac or something like that. And I decided to sober twerk one of the old timers that was there. And he was sat there with a sausage roll in one hand and a mouthful of stale crisps. And as I was twerking him, he shouted, I love my sobriety. And (laughs) that for me was pretty rock and roll. So it proves you don't need a drink in your hand to twerk on some guy's lap. (laughs) I never knew I could twerk. Louisa, I do crazy stuff all the time. That's what we love about you. I do funny voices, funny walks, funny laughs. But just doing that with a sense of freedom uh, is great. I think that's amazing. It is absolutely brilliant. And I've absolutely loved chatting to you today. You are a star of the Instagram community. So anybody wanting to follow Pearl, rock bottomed girl. So I'll put all the links in the show notes to all of the Instagram accounts and some other useful links. But I just want to say I have so enjoyed chatting to you today. It's been a brilliant first time for me. You were very gentle with me. Cheyenne with this, Louisa. Are we going to be putting on the lacy knickers tonight? Oh, absolutely. I'm wearing them already. (laughs) I'm not wearing any. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Phil. You're absolutely bonkers and I love you for it. Love you too. And just to remind you that this podcast and all opinions contained within it is simply a positive look at what it means to be sober. It isn't designed to lighten the subject of alcohol abuse, rather show that there is light at the end of the tunnel for anyone considering sobriety. It's for the purpose of inspiration and entertainment and not a replacement for therapy. Alcohol use disorder is a serious subject and so if you're struggling, then please seek the help of a trained professional and don't suffer alone. Until next time, take care.